be seated. In 1976, uh, John Westerhoff, um, an Episcopal priest and scholar, wrote a book entitled, Will Our Children Have Faith? Will Our Children Have Faith? That was 1976, folks. Already at that time, there was great alarm within the church, especially within the mainline denominational churches. It has now spread to all churches, as we know uh, through the history. But there was a fear that there, uh, the church was failing in passing on the faith to the next generation. It was so fearful for John Westerhoff that he wrote his book, It Has Simply Gotten Worse Over Time. We are 40 years later, and I have a feeling that if he were to write the book now, he would entitle it, Will Any of Our Children Have Faith? All right? There is a fear within the church, and it's a rightful thing um, to ask, how do we pass on the faith to our children? How do we, who long to see them come alive in it, do that passing on? And for those of us who have failed in that with our own children, I get it. And the weight of that is heavy on us who yearn to see that day. So just know that uh, I am sensitive to this. It's been a passion for me for my entire ministry. Um, and so I am sensitive to the texts of Scripture, seeking the wisdom of God when these things come forth, and they come forth a lot. As I looked at the four texts we had today, three of them jumped off the page with this theme in mind. And so I am simply going to walk through those three uh, and tell you what I heard them say to me, and I trust through me to you. In answering to that question, what do you and I need to do how do we need to live in order that we might pass on the faith to our children? Start with the Psalm 78. Uh, it's a great Psalm. Uh, and the one thing that comes clear to me, uh, and I'll put this in a very trite way, uh, the first thing we need to do is to expose our children to the story of God. <laughs> to expose our children to the story of God. And not simply by telling it to them, but by living within it. That's the key, of course. Listen to the way that the psalmist begins. He says, look, he's writing from the wisdom tradition. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things we have heard and known that our fathers told us. He says, this thing that we're going to be passing on was passed on to us. Our fathers told us things that we have heard and known. They have told us we will not hide them from our children, 
but tell to the coming generation. There is the heart of the psalmist. He says, as we have received, we shall give. That's our hope, that's our desire, that we will tell them we will not hide these things from our children, right? And notice then what things need to be told. He says, the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. Two things he highlights uh, as we are to tell the story, to hear and to pass on the things. We are to tell them the deeds of God and the words of God, right? How God has acted on our behalf in redemption and creation, and how he has revealed of himself his character and his ways for us, his deeds and his words. That's what we are to tell to our children and not hide them from it, right? Oh, man. And to what end? So that the next generation might know them. The children yet unborn and arise to tell them to their children. And there's the cycle being promised. We carry this on, we pass it on to the generation, the unbroken chain from one to the other. And here's the hope, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. We are to tell the story to our children, the deeds of God, the words of God, so that they might know them, but know them personally. Come to know the God who is revealed through them so that their hope becomes placed in God. Their future lived with God. And they can only do that, though, if they do not forget the deeds of God, looking to that assured past. And they can only do that, looking to the future in hope, remembering the deeds, then they can live. They can keep His commandments in the present moment. That's what the psalmist says. The first thing we must do is to expose our children to the story of God in such a way that it becomes theirs that they know the God who reveals himself through this story. I guess my question to us is, are we doing that? And are we doing it well enough? Can I just say a word to our parents of young kids in this congregation today? Do not rely on the church to do this for you. Rely on the church to help you do it, but don't rely on the church to do it for you. 30 minutes on a Sunday morning during worship or 60 minutes when we have discipleship hour is simply not enough time to expose our children effectively to the story. Parents, grandparents, 
godparents, you are the primary teachers, the primary catechists of your children. Do not hide these things from them. Teach them, tell them the story. And if you need help, ask for it. That's the first thing. We go on to the second from the epistle reading. Uh, before we can expose our children to the story, guess what? We have to be exposed to the story. <laughs> we parents, we teachers, we grandparents, we the older generation. Ephesians 4 is a great reading. Uh, we've been going sequentially through Ephesians in our uh, lectionary. Uh, and Paul now has gotten to the practical part. He is hammering away at behaviors now that he wants them and us to uh, to uh, inculcate. And he issues an ultimate challenge to them. He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Right? He's talking to Gentiles, right? These are ones that he has converted into the church. He says, you must no longer live as the Gentiles. Guess what? You might remain culturally Gentiles, but you are not a Gentile anymore. That's his point. Ah, you got to stop living the way you were living. Uh, and then he goes on to talk about the uh, essence of what that life looked like, what was part of it. It's a wonderful diagnosis. He says, not longer walk in the ways that they do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. Oh, man. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This is a diagnosis of fallen humanity. Uh, and it's a wonderful thing, but I don't want to get caught up in it because the main point is the main point. And he wants to get to the main point. And here it is. All right? He's saying, here's what I want from you. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Let me read that again. That is not the way you learned Christ. We'll come back to that. Assuming that you have heard about him, he gets a little snarky here, and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. He's the one who taught them. Remember that. He is the apostle who taught them uh, and taught them Christ. They learned Christ from him. And he describes that dynamic that he taught them. He says, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He says, this is what I taught you to do. This is how you learned Christ. These three things comprise the discipleship process that I taught you. I taught you to do two active things, to put off the old and to put on the new. Those are things that you and I must do if they are going to get done. But. They are active but responsive things. They flow from the th third thing, 
We need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. There's the generative force, the renewal of our minds by the spirit of God. When, though, when that renewal takes place and as it takes place, then we know what and how to put off, and we know what and how to put on. So the question is, how do we shape our lives so that we are renewed in the spirit of our minds? Right? And I'm going to make just a bald statement, not going to flesh it out. But here is my answer to that question. You and I, we need to embrace a way of life. It's not just one thing. It's multiple things. But we need to embrace a way of life, both individually and corporately, that exposes ourselves, our lived lives, both individually and corporately, to the story of God, to the scriptures of God, and to do so in such a way that the spirit of the living Christ can speak to us through those scriptures. Right? The spirit of the living Christ can convict us of sin and what we need to put off. The Spirit of Christ can direct us in the way that is truth and, and the way that is life, and we can start putting them on. The Spirit of the living Christ can inspire us and indeed enthrall us with the beauty and the wonder of Jesus. So we are motivated to put off and to put We need to embrace a way of life that exposes ourselves to the Scriptures and allows the Spirit to transform our lives from the inside out, right? The question comes, have you embraced such a life? Have we corporately embraced such a life? That's what all of our ministries are all about. That's what these evenings that Jennifer has planned uh, over the next four nights are all about, is to help us bring some of these practices into our homes. Um, that's what our ministries of uh, education, that's what our home groups should be all about. Indeed, that's something about even impartial what our worship is. But the question is, have you and I embraced such a way of life for ourselves so that this dynamic of being renewed and therefore knowing what to put off and to put on is happening in our homes, in our lives? Let me just say this boldly. If you and I have not learned this for ourselves, how can we teach it to our children? If you are struggling with any of this, and do we all not struggle with this, right? 
ask for help. We are in this together. It is part of why we are the body at this point in time. And so I would urge you to come this week. I would urge you to pick up the discipleship hour this fall. I would urge you to build into your home life the practices that expose you to the Scriptures and the God of the Scriptures, and then see what happens. It's the second thing. We need to expose our children to the Scriptures of God. We need to expose ourselves to those scriptures. And finally, we must expose ourselves primarily to Jesus. And we come now to the gospel text of this morning. Um, yeah, let me just make a few comments about the text. It's, uh, again, wonderful stuff, and I'm just going to pick up one or two things. Uh, we are in John 6, as the aftermath of the feeding of the 5,000, which we read a few weeks ago. Um, and again, the story that John picks up uh, is that Jesus has crossed the water uh, back to Capernaum, uh, and these folks who have been left on the other side discover that they find him and join him and then are challenged by him. And here's what Jesus says. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, good thing, right? Not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves, right? You're seeking me, he says, but you're not seeking me in the purest of ways. You're not yet seeking me for myself. You're seeking me for what I can do for you. We are all there. We are all there, right? You ate your fill of loaves. And then here's a challenge. Do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life. Do you hear what he's saying? He says, you're right to seek me. You're right to be seeking because there is something that you and I and every one of us needs. <laughs> something that will lead to eternal life. There is something within us that we know is not yet full. There is something we have to seek outside of ourselves. He says, that's true, that's good, you're right. <laughs> But you need to be absolutely focused on finding that thing, the thing that endures to the true life. And guess what? I'm the only one who can give it. He goes on to say, which the Son of Man will give you. And he's the only one who can give it because, he goes on, he says, for on him God the Father has set his seal. And there we come to the great exclusive claims of Jesus. <laughs> you need something. We all need something. And I am the only one who can give it to you. That's his claim. <laughs> I am the only one who can give it to you, because on me the God the Father has set his seal. He calls this something the bread of life, right? Uh, that's something that we need to be fully alive, to be living the way we were created to live. He calls that the bread of life, and he says, I'm going to give you the bread of life, but guess what? He calls himself the bread of life. <laughs> what I want to give you is myself. 
I want to give you me. And that's how he ends this particular text. He is both the giver and the gift, and he alone can give it, and he alone is it. <laughs> and we have to sort of work our way around to understanding it. How do you understand it? Well, let me just very quickly tell the gospel story. And I do it in a number of points. The story of Israel that we are to expose our children to, that we are to be exposed to ourselves, the story of Israel, all of that from creation to the call of Abraham and all that flows, finds its climax in the life of the Messiah. Everything comes to its climatic end with the life of Jesus. He comes and lives the life that you and I were called to live but cannot live because of our sin. But that's, he is the bread of life. He has lived that life that we were created to live. And the good news is he not only lived it for his father, but he lived it for us. He lived it on our behalf and in our place as our representative, the one who embodies ourselves, and as our substitute, as we'll see. Because having lived this life for the Father and for us, he then takes that life and offers it to the Father on our behalf as a sacrifice for our sin. And in so doing, breaks the power of evil over his good creation. Life conquers death. His life conquers death. And we know that because the Father vindicated him. The resurrection is setting the seal on the Son by the Father. He resurrected him and exalted him as the life above all life, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one before whom all, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. He is that life that has been vindicated and exalted by the Father. And out of this goodness of God, he now pours out his life upon his creatures in the form and the presence of his spirit. He gives himself to those who respond to him by faith and repentance. He truly gives himself to those who respond to him with faith and repentance. He is the gift as well as the giver. And when you and I respond to the call of God through the telling of the story of God, by faith, when that call awakens us to say, I'm in. <laughs> and when we submit 
to the sacrament of baptism, we not only receive the gift, but are united with the giver, made one with him. And then we find ourselves with the privilege of living our life in him, with him, and for him. We are in Christ Jesus. We are living in partnership in this friendship, this dynamic relationship that empowers us. And we're living for Him. That we might live in our own life the kind of life He grants to us from His. Right? Which leads me back to worship. Worship is the primary thing in life. Worship is where our discipleship finds its ground and its power. It comes together at the table, comes together as we open the Word and then share the bread and the wine. For this one not only calls us to himself and unites us to himself, but feeds us with himself, that we might live his life in him, with him, and for him. That's the Christian life. And it comes together again in the sacramental life of his people. We come to worship, to purify our devotion to Him, because we are not yet fully worshiping Him as we need to worship Him. But we come in worship in order to deepen our allegiance to Him. That's why we come. And let me just say this, again to parents and godparents and grandparents. If your children are to find faith, they need to see your devotion to Jesus. They need to see that you are seeking Him with all of your hearts and minds and soul. They need to worship with you, not just here, but everywhere. Three texts, three practices. We need to expose our children to the story in such a way that they gladly make it their own. We need to expose ourselves to the story, the scriptures, embracing a way of life that allows the Spirit to renew our minds and empower our actions. And we need to center ourselves in worship so that we not only receive the gift but deepen our devotion to and union with the giver. If we do those things and our children see us doing those things, trust that God will grant them faith. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.